0: All right, if you think back to our study last week, uh, we we had a string of events. And what I want us to recall from last week was one of the very last points there. uh, We referenced that passage from Acts chapter 26. As Paul was speaking to uh, Agrippa at the time, he said, You know that these things were not done in a corner. And so when we think about the birth of Jesus, these things are most definitely not done in a corner. Think about just the string of events. Uh, when, when you have Christ being born there in Bethlehem, in that field nearby you have the shepherds. And the shepherds that are told by an angel and then presented with this multitude of angels. That they are to go to Bethlehem to worship the Savior. And so you can imagine this little town where a bunch of shepherds are coming in looking to worship this, this new Messiah. And then not only do you have the shepherds, but when they go to the temple to present Jesus, you have Simeon and you have Anna. Anna. These two individuals, and we kind of, you said, put yourself in the place of Jesus' parents where this individual just comes up and grabs your child to start blessing him. But you had that in Simeon, you had that in Anna, and then the wise men. That's where we finished our class last time. The wise men did not go to Bethlehem originally. Where did they go? They went to Herod. They went to Herod, and it says that all Jerusalem was astir. So everybody in this area knew that something big was happening. And I believe that was that was on purpose. So all of this was done so that people could know that this was not a secret. The Messiah was here. These things were not done in a corner. And we're going to continue on uh, with our account. So if you would, open up to Matthew chapter 2. We left off in verse 13. Um, so... These wise men have come. They have worshipped. They have worshipped Jesus. Uh, Herod senses a threat to his power because they said they have come to worship the king. And naturally this gets Herod's attention. Instead of going back to Herod though, these wise men are warned and they go back a different way. And now Joseph is warned. Uh, In verse 13, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. Um, And this was prophesied. If you go back to Hosea chapter 11. And in verse 1, it even mentions there, in in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 2, it quotes from Hosea, Out of Egypt I have called my son. So providentially, Joseph is warned to take Jesus and to go into Egypt. And as we come to the next couple of verses, we see exactly why. Uh, Just in this attempt to thwart the will of God and to prevent this challenge to his throne, Herod orders that all the male babies under the age of two be killed. And it seems that he picked this based on his conversation with the wise men. If you go back earlier in the chapter, he asked the wise men, when did you see this star? Uh, We we don't know a whole lot about this group of wise men. We don't know exactly how far they traveled. But it seems that they had seen this star some period of time before as they had come on their journey and it had led them to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem where the child was. It's, I think, interesting and of note that When presented with all of that information, this supernatural, miraculous circumstance that led these individuals to Herod's doorstep, Herod then goes to his scribes and says, where, where is this Messiah going to be born? They have no problem finding the answer when they search the scriptures. So when confronted with fulfilled prophecy right in front of them, Herod still thinks, that he can thwart God's plan. And that's just an example of of the arrogance of man. That's just an example of men thinking, even when confronted with the providence and the planning of God, you know, he believed in the coming of the Messiah. He saw the evidence right in front of him. But yet, how many times do we see the evidence of God's handiwork right in front of us? And we can still work our own mental gymnastics to think that we can get around that, that we can thwart that, that we can somehow come up with our own plan. Uh, it, it mentions in Matthew chapter 2 and in verse 18. Uh, this, is, this is quoting back from Jeremiah chapter 31. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Just a, just a sad, sad circumstance to think about this wicked, evil individual uh, that thought that by killing all of these children, he could, he could hold on to a little tiny sliver of power. Uh, but if you think about it, Herod, Herod was, a pretty, uh, he was a pretty brutal king. Um, and this is something that he, he unfortunately passed on to a number of his family members. If you go back and read some secular history, he reportedly had his own wife and two sons killed prior to this in an effort to consolidate power and prevent challenges to his throne. His son, Herod Antipas, is going to be the one that's going to kill John the Baptist when you come to Mark chapter 6. Uh, And later on, he mocks Jesus in Luke 23, when Jesus won't perform a miracle for him. Uh, His grandson, Agrippa I, is going to be the one to kill James the Apostle in Acts chapter 12. And then his great-grandson, as we mentioned earlier, Agrippa II, is going to be the one who is at Paul's trial in Acts chapter 25 and 26. Um, So again, just individuals that, while sad, this is common to man. That we think that through violence and through our own means, we can somehow... Go against the God that rules in the affairs of men, lifts up nations, casts down nations, prophesies that nations are going to fall. But even when we see it in front of us, we don't believe it. Uh, Well, let's go on to the next couple of verses. uh, Verses 19 and following. Uh, By all accounts, this this did not last very long. perhaps a year, maybe a year and a half. But they were not in Egypt for a very long period of time before Herod died. And it mentions in verse 19 that an angel of the Lord, just as it had come to Joseph and told him to go to Egypt, now it comes to him and says, Arise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. So he follows this command. Um, it's interesting, we, we, don't talk about, we don't talk about Joseph a whole lot. Um, you know, Joseph is, is really only on the scene in scriptures for a pretty short amount of time. But I do think it's commendable that what we do hear of Joseph is, is his obedience. When, when the angel first comes to him and says, don't put Mary away, this is, this is God's doing. Okay, he does it. When he's told to go to Egypt, he goes. When he's told to come back from Egypt, he goes. Uh, it just reminds me of, of Abraham. We think all the way back to the Old Testament when Abraham was told to get up and to leave he went. And that was his faith in action. And we see here from the little bit that we know of Joseph, that Joseph, Joseph demonstrated that faith. When he was told by these angels in these dreams to do something, he did it. It doesn't mention any kind of doubt. It doesn't mention any kind of uncertainty. Uh, it just mentions that he did it. And he's to be commended for that. Um, He's further warned in verse 22 to go to Galilee. So not just to come back. It mentions in verse 22 that he had heard that uh, Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father uh, Herod. He was afraid to go there. And so being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside to the region of Galilee and came to Nazareth. And and he's actually just going back to where they were from. He's going back to Nazareth. If we look at the other accounts, um, it mentions that was their original home. It also mentions there in verse 23 that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Uh, So he he doesn't mention this was their original home. We find that out in Luke. But he does mention this fulfills prophecy. So, So what prophecy is it fulfilling? Does anybody know of a prophecy that says he shall be called a Nazarene? What's that? I, I'm I'm not aware of one. Is, does I is Isaiah eleven one say that? What does Isaiah 11:1 say? Sherry, I think you're right. But what does Isaiah chapter eleven and verse one say? There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Is there anything there about Nazareth? Well, yes yes, and no. So, so here, here, here's what I'm getting at. I left you in suspense long enough. Nazarene in Hebrew is this word netzar, and netzar is translated branch. And so, Sherry, Sherry you're right, whether you realize it or not. <laughs> so if you go back to those prophecies that we would already talked about, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, there's lots that talks about the branch. And so you can see that it can have that double fulfillment that word branch uh, that that Netzar is translated into Nazarene and so there's this little bit of, uh, of double fulfillment there and so that's how we can kind of reconcile because you look at that and you say, okay well wh- where do I, where do I go in the Old Testament to find out that he's going to be called a Nazarene and, and you don't and I, I haven't found that um, and so but we do see where he is going to be the branch and so again it just I mean, if you really step back and you start looking at some of these things, it's just amazing how God layers evidence upon evidence upon evidence, even down to the detail where he's going to be born and where he's going to live. Remember, Nazareth and and Bethlehem were not close. But God is working through these earthly officials to have a census at this time to bring them from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy, and then to get them back to Nazareth to have this this area, this double fulfillment. So not only is he going to be the branch, the rod, that's going to come from the line of Jesse and David, but he is also going to be a Nazarene. It's just I don't know, it's kind of mind-blowing when you sit back and you think about how it just layers and stacks that evidence on evidence. Uh, any comments or anything before we, we switch back over to Luke? All right, let's, let's wrap up our material from last week. Uh, I would love to say that I feel like we can finish this week, but I'm not optimistic about that either. So we might just be in this pattern for a while where we're always kind of finishing up the week before and then getting through what we can. But go to Luke chapter 2. Uh, as we try to follow this chronology, As we now we're going to come to Luke chapter 2. Um, Luke chapter 2, verse 39 and 40 really just picks up. Luke does not mention. This is interesting to me that Luke, for someone who is so detail-oriented, you know talks a lot about the very early years and does not mention this period of time, but he does pick up in Luke chapter 2 and verse 39 with the family uh, returning to Nazareth. Um, and, And it just says in verse 40, the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Luke really bookends the end of the chapter, verse 52, with a similar phrase. And so you have verse 40 talking about the child growing, uh, being strong in the spirit, filled with wisdom. And verse 52, he increased in wisdom and stature and found in favor with God and men. Uh, I almost see those two things as, you know, parenthetical statements with the account verse 41 through verse 50 as evidence of that. So verses 41 through 50 are talking about the family going to the Passover feast in Jerusalem and a familiar account to a lot of us where Jesus stays behind. And so why is this account given here? I think it's, an, it's evidence. It's an account to show what is he talking about. How was the child? Again, we have such, such little information about these formative years of Jesus, but we do have this account. And what I, would, what I would bring out to you are there are, probably, there are probably two big things that come out to me from this. And, and I think we, we, uh, if, we've, if we've studied, we've done our reading, we remember this, that the family goes for the Passover. Um, the family leaves. It seems like there's a large group of them. There's a large enough group that when they leave, they don't notice that Jesus stayed behind. But after they've been on their journey for a little bit, they realize that Jesus is not among the company. They turn back. And they find him there. And it mentions that when they find him, that he is both asking questions and answering questions. A very important quality. Uh, you, have to, you have to know what you're talking about to be able to ask the right questions. And, and Jesus was concerned about his, uh, his father's business. He was wise beyond his years. And he was asking and answering these questions with the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers. And so when he's confronted by his parents, who are amazed... They said, you know, why have you done this? Verse 48, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And his response in verse 49, he says, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? You know, there's, there's a lot, if you go and start reading these commentaries, there's a lot that can be made of this. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to read too much into it. What it does tell me is that he is aware of his purpose. You know, you can, you, can, you can really spin in your head when you, when you start to think about how much does Jesus know and when does he know it? You know, when did he know about his pre-incarnate knowledge? When did he know about everything? You know, when, when did all that happen? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know that it really matters to us when that, when that occurred. But what we can take away is that at this age of 12, he was aware that he had a much greater purpose while he was going to be here on this earth. And that purpose was to be about his father in heaven's business. Uh, Alex got a comment over there. Um, he was to be about his business and he needed to be. Uh, and I think he's just letting his parents know there that, that, yes, I am aware that I have some things that I need to do. Yes.
1: About Jesus asking these questions later on, we see it when he teaches people. Oftentimes he uses questions yeah. to get them thinking and to help direct their thoughts. All the time that I've read this, I've always thought he was asking questions as a student in class. Well, what about this? Oh, yeah. but Jeremy, that's a good point, yeah. There's, there's a, there, there, you could look at that as he's asking these teachers questions mm-hmm. to help teach them and direct them, and then they're amazed by his answers.
0: Yeah, oh, that's a really good point, Jeremy. I appreciate you bringing that out because I, I had not thought about that. I, I thought about, you know... The student that was at the head of the class that knew the questions to ask. But you're right. It could definitely have been where even at this young age, he was already asking things to get them thinking in a different way. Uh, we're going to talk about that if we, if we make it to Nicodemus. I don't know if we will. But, but really at the beginning of his ministry, having to fight against this idea of an earthly kingdom. And, and it could be that even at this point in time, he was asking them questions to get them thinking in a different way about the Old Testament scriptures and what was the true purpose of the Messiah. That's a really good point. Um, what, I, what I think is interesting, though, is that even you've got this, this great balance, though, is that even at this early age, Jesus is demonstrating to his parents that he is aware of his greater purpose. But that purpose does not supersede his parents. And, and I love that balance that's there. They don't, they don't understand. It says in verse 50, they do not understand the statement which he spoke to them. But then verse 51, he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and New King James Version says subject in verse 51. Other versions may say obedient. He was subject, he was obedient to them, and his mother kept all these things in her heart. You think about the self-control <laughs> that, was, that was evident here. Because there's going to be a, a period of time, you know, his, his earthly ministry is not going to start for, for you know, many more years, maybe, maybe 18 more years. Can you imagine when you've got something really, really important to do and you've got to wait? I, I, I don't know if there's anything that's harder from a self-control standpoint when you know that you've just got a super, super important task and you can't get to it. You know, take it down to something even menial when you know that you've got to mow the grass and it's raining. Is there anything worse than sitting there and just staring at the rain and thinking, oh, I've got, I've got to mow that grass. I've got to mow. And that's, that's, that, is, that is nothing. That is trivial. <laughs> but but that, that being able, you know, not being able to do something we know that we need to do is it, tough on us. Now, multiply that by the biggest number you can think of. He is aware that Jesus needs to be about his Father's business, but yet he has the self control to be obedient to be submissive to his parents and to wait. That is is remarkable to me, that he had that kind of patience, that kind of self-control, knowing the task that was ahead of him. You know, If it were me, I think, man, I would want to do everything I could to work ahead. But no, he he knew that this was going to be done in God's time. And he was able to be patient. And even, even throughout all of this, it mentions that he was able to be obedient to his parents. And that's when we see, again, that parenthetical, hey, Alex, uh, Bruce, over here. We've got that parenthetical statement, verse uh, again, verse forty, verse uh, fifty-two, kind of bookending there about the qualities that he was growing and demonstrating. Bruce, I just want to say he's still waiting, yeah, waiting, waiting for us and waiting uh, to give us up to the Father. Yeah. yeah, Bill. Yeah,
1: and also when you when you talk about waiting, that the thing that came to my mind is. If you think about what Jesus is doing in his ministry, he's referencing the Old Testament. He's showing people how he is a fulfillment of the things to come. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, how he references, you know, you have heard this said and I say to you. So during this 18-year period, he's building that bucket of knowledge in order to to get there. So I understand your point about waiting, but he's he's building a a knowledge bank of how he's going to teach these people. You're not going to go... And just sit idly for for eighteen years, yeah. and automatically know how to speak to a group of people and their rulers and the
0: Pharisees. Yeah. So I
1: think, yeah, I think you're right that he's that he's waiting, but also he's he's preparing, not yeah. just uh, not just waiting.
0: And waiting doesn't mean doing nothing. And, and I think that, that's that's a great point to bring out. Waiting does not mean and Di- Miss Diana back there. Waiting does not mean doing nothing. Um, <laughs> but it, it just it just struck me in reading through that that there was this super, super important task. And even when we get to, even when we get to uh, a little bit later, uh, when, when he turns the water into wine and he approaches his mother, he says, listen, my, my, time, my time's not here. Yeah, That's Dana.
1: exactly what I was going to say.
0: Okay, I Mary, stole it from you, I'm sorry. Mary,
1: Mary, uh, Mary must have known too, because she was so eager that she jumped ahead of what Jesus wanted her to do mm-hmm. in, in asking him to do that miracle. I, and I never thought of it until,
0: what you mm-hmm. yeah. But, but but you're right. There, there's definitely there's there's both sides of that. There there is an understanding of God's time and the perfect timing for, for when this was going to be carried out. And but but you're right. I think and Bill, I appreciate that point. That it was not doing nothing. It was not just kind of sitting there twiddling his thumbs. You know, waiting for waiting for a sign from heaven that now you can go to work. Good point. Well, let, let's go ahead. If you would go back with me to Matthew chapter three. Matthew chapter three. Now we'll start on our stuff for uh, for today. Matthew chapter 3. And, and now we're going to talk about John the Baptist. Um, we, we mentioned this when we were studying through Luke. Uh, but now we're going to be talking about, you know, we, a good amount of time has passed. But now we're going to be talking about John the Baptist. And really, this is the introduction to, uh, to the ministry. As we mentioned before, these things were not done in a corner. So there was a lot of, there should have been a lot of awareness of the birth of Christ Similarly, there should have been a lot of awareness of the ministry of Christ. That was the purpose of John the Baptist. And we're going to see that he was extremely effective. You know, this was not a guy going around putting up flyers. John the Baptist had a very, very serious ministry that had a really good response from what we see. So come with me to Matthew chapter 3. And in these first 12 verses here, we're introduced to his his work. And his work centers around repentance and, and really blazing the way for Christ to come. Uh, so Matthew chapter 3, there, there are similar accounts Similar accounts in Mark 1. We're not going to spend any time in Mark. Uh, we will go over to Luke chapter 3 after this. But what I want to bring out from, from Matthew is that we're going to see a couple of common elements. Uh, all accounts quote from Isaiah chapter 40. So, all accounts, and so we can go back there. Um, You you can see it here. Uh, You can go back to Isaiah and look at it. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. That was John's mission. Uh, If you go back to Luke in the beginning, when the angel came to Zacharias, he said, He's going to come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And John is really going to embody that. He's going to embody that not only in his words, in his call to repentance in his leading people to Christ, but he's even going to embody that in the way that he dresses. If you go back and you look at how Elijah dressed, and you look at how John dresses, verse 4, John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. So he, he is doing everything he can to get people's attention, to prepare the way, to preach a message, so that when Christ does start his ministry... It is not going to be a hard transition from what they've been hearing and what they've been thinking about. And it mentions again that it's very effective. Verse 5, Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Uh, that's, that's, that's remarkable to me. Um, and uh, not quite there yet. But I guess for whatever reason, I, I did not realize maybe the scope or the impact of John's work. Until so you read through these accounts, and they mention that he, he had a great impact. He had a really good following. You know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't take these words lightly when it says Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. I, I don't think this means that every single person went out to him. But you could not have lived in this area and not have known about the work that John the Baptist was doing. You would have probably known somebody. You would have seen people leaving your town to go out to this area. Whether you responded yourself or not, you would have known what was going on. We're told later in John's account that the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, sends people to John to find out more about this. So the rulers knew about it. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the scribes, they knew about it. The common people knew about it. And that was exactly the purpose. That John was preparing the way and starting this message. And... If you were to think about a, a, a marketing campaign, this, this was not a, a subtle marketing campaign. This, this was not a, a, an easy message. Let me kind of just introduce this idea. Let me kind of float something out there and see what you guys think about it. You look at some of the, you look at some of the words that it's told us that when you go down to verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he says, brood of vipers. How, how's that for starting a message off? brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, you, John is certainly, when we're going to find this out later, when you think about the way that he interacts with Herod, he is not afraid to speak truth to power. It, it, again, I, I just go back to if you were a man and you wanted to have a big impact and you wanted to have a big influence, say, say you're going to start a political campaign. Do you go find the most influential people and tell them that they're terrible and they're a brood of, they're a brood of vipers? Do you start off with maybe the most controversial topics? No. You know, if you were a man, you'd say, okay, i gotta, I got to ease into it. i got to get allies. I, I want to go to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. I want to get them on my side. I kind of want to start off with something that everybody agrees on. No. No. John goes out. He's like, ah, oh, great. I'm glad you guys came. I've been wanting to talk to you. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to come? Who warned you to get away from what you have coming to you? This was not, and I'll put this up here. When you think about all these individuals that are being baptized, this was not just, just symbolic. John was preaching, and he expected people to change. He was talking to them, and he said, listen, you need to bear fruit worthy of repentance. And look at this language here in verse 9 of, uh, of Matthew. You know, this is similar to what, similar to what Christ is going to say later on. Don't think to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And I don't think there's any mistaking who's the axe and who's the tree. You know, John John just comes out. He hits them pretty strong. Go over with me, uh, go over with me to Luke's account. Um, we'll, we'll come back to this. Ah, don't go to Luke's account. I, 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 do want, I do want to touch on this before we go. Um, Luke, Luke is going to hit on many of the same things. What I want to bring out when we come to Luke's account is that he gets very, very specific. And in Luke's account, it adds some additional detail where he basically goes group by group And he tells them exactly what he expects of them. So so we'll we'll hit on that. That's the point that I wanted to make there. Is that this is not just John getting out there and getting some people wet to say, Hey, listen, just think about this later on, whenever this comes around. He, he, He is preaching a very important message for the here and now. And he expected people that were coming to confess their sins and repent of those sins to make actual transformative changes. What I, what I do want to talk about before we, leave, before we leave Matthew's account, though, is that is this baptism. When you come to verse 11, um, you know, he, he mentions that he is not the Messiah. And we are going to see this in all the accounts. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even when he gets to John, um, he does not pretend to be the Messiah. He is preaching a powerful message. He is preaching a transformative message. But he says, I am not the one. And that, that's remarkable to me. The humility that he displays time and time again when he would have opportunity to take credit for, for the things that he is doing, for the good that he is doing. He says in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. What, a, what an incredible phrase. He's not worthy to carry the sandals. So probably the dirtiest, most disgusting element of clothing at that point in time that somebody would have, something that is collecting all the dirt and all the sweat from their feet, John said, I'm not worthy to pick that up and carry it for the person that is coming after me. I'm baptizing you with water unto repentance. I'm doing something that's important. But if you think what I'm doing is important, just wait. Man, just wait. And so he says, this one that is coming is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Real quick, I want to talk about that idea of, of, being, uh, of baptizing with the Holy Spirit. What, what I love about, about the Bible and a lot of things is that there are some times where we look at a difficult passage and think, man, uh, what does that mean? There are other times that it just tells us. And I love that. Being a very very simple person, it tells us exactly what this baptism of the Holy Spirit is. So you can sit there and you think, man, what what does it mean? It's kind of, I feel like anytime we start talking about the Holy Spirit, kind of like starts taking those little steps backward. And we're like, I don't know. I don't know if I really want to touch that. I don't know if I really understand that. What's great about this is it tells us exactly what he means by being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I'm thinking of two two occasions. Go to Acts chapter 1. When you go to Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, Jesus talking to his apostles. He's promising them that it says uh, that, that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And he tells them in verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when you come over to uh, chapter 2, you come over to chapter 2 and you look there at verses 3 and 4, It says, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were immersed with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Uh, When you go on, we have one other situation with Cornelius and the Gentiles. So go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, when Peter preaches to them, and in verse 44 it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And these individuals are astonished. If you go to chapter 11, as Peter is recounting this, in verse 16, he says, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, And I, I do think it's interesting to point out there that in that account with Cornelius and the Gentiles, after they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, after the Holy Spirit fell upon them, they were also then baptized for the remission of their sins. So... When we see something like that, we don't have to kind of wonder, oh man, I wonder what that, what's John talking about? What's this Holy Spirit? Is there this special baptism that's coming that, that, I, that I missed out on? We're told exactly what that Holy Spirit baptism is. And we're told in point blank language, when you go to the beginning of Acts, when you go to this occasion with the Gentiles first being converted, exactly what that baptism, that immersion of the Holy Spirit is. And then, in case you missed it, it quotes back from John, so that you know exactly what it's doing, linking those two things together. Uh, any, any thoughts there before we go on? To uh, we got one up here. Uh, any thoughts before we go on to Luke's account?
1: I just wanted to add to your comments about how you start a movement that you were talking about with uh, with John the Baptist. So in in Acts chapter five, um, Gamaliel talks about. Two guys, Judas and Judas of Galilee. <clears throat> excuse me, who who um, did it the conventional way? This is how you start a mm-hmm. movement. Um, if you look at their work and the work of Josephus, you go to the people, you tell them Rome is bad. Don't pay. <clears throat> excuse me. Don't pay taxes. Come and come and follow me because I'm big and I'm important and I'm from God and I'm a prophet. Mm-hmm. obviously, it's very short-lived, like Gamaliel mm-hmm. says. But Jesus I and mean with John the Baptist and thus Jesus. Are taking the very opposite approach kind of to your point and the people of this area have evidence of that because they've seen others come right around this generation and also claim to be uh or claim to have a message from god but they start with rome they don't start yeah. with the hearts and the minds of the people
0: yeah it's a great point and again you see you just go back to this idea man's way god's way <laughs> And even when you go to Corinthians, you know, I'm always reminded of that passage there in 1 Corinthians where he, where he tells them, you know, just, just the idea that the gospel, the gospel is foolishness. The gospel in a lot of ways is foolishness to those who are mighty and those who are wise in this age. If you try to use man's wisdom, it is not going to work. But that's why we see what truly does have an impact. Now, uh, Mark, Mark's account, the only thing that I'm going to bring out about Mark's account, it's, it's very, very similar. Uh, when he quotes from Isaiah 40, he also quotes from Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. A- and again, I would just point out that when you read through Mark's account, it's just amazing to me that it, it, it highlights in verse 7, Mark chapter 1 and verse 7, John was crystal clear about his relation to the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. I am not this guy. I'm doing something important, but when he comes, he's going to blow your mind. And so I think it's a remarkable, uh, a remarkable trait and characteristic of John to know exactly what his role is. Come with me to Luke chapter 3. Uh, l- let's see. Here. Luke really of this, he provides a lot of detail when you come to Luke chapter 3. He even gives us the time. So Luke chapter 3 verse 1, he goes through all the rulers. And really when you start stacking all these rulers on top of each other, that gives us just a, just a really, you can kind of put a pin in it. Where are we in time when all of these individuals were, were ruling? Um, again, he also, he also mentions what we talked about earlier. Um, the, way that, the way that John talked to these people, it was not, it was not soothing. It was not kind of easing them into it. He, he was hitting you over the head with a two-by-four, with the truth. Um, in, in, this is just a small thing. In, in typical Luke fashion, everybody else quotes one verse from Isaiah 40. Uh, Luke quotes three, a little bit of a, a one-upper with the details there, um, but very, very detail-oriented. What I, what I do like about, about Luke's account is, and I mentioned this just a couple of minutes ago. When you come down to verses 11 through 14, and this is really all I want to highlight, because I think we talked about we talked about a lot of it, is that real change is expected when we confess sin and repent. From the very beginning. You know, John's, John's ministry was, again, not just, hey, let me just kind of introduce this idea. Think back on these things when Christ comes. He's going to do the real work. This was real work. This was softening and changing the hearts of people so that when Christ came, he would be able to have a far greater impact. But look look when these people are coming to him and they're asking what they need to do. So verse 11, he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Tax collectors, what do we need to do? Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Soldiers, what do we need to do? Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely. Specific practical changes that would manifest itself in your life that everyone could see. Things that were commonplace. You think about the life of a soldier. Probably you, you, you intimidated people for breakfast. That's what you did. You were a Roman soldier. You got your way by having a really big sword and a staff and getting your way and, and imposing your will upon people. Change it. If you're a tax collector, a lot of the ways that they made their profit was, if the tariff is 10%, we're going to take 12%, 2 percent's our margin. Pretty good business plan. Change it. If you're a person, I'm here looking out for number one. If I've got two tunics, that's great. It might get cold. I'm going to want both of those. No. If I've got extra food, great. Maybe I can feed my family tomorrow. No. Real transformative change. That's what the gospel has always been about. When Jesus comes to the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to hammer that home time and time again. Transformative change. And you think about baptism. Again, baptism is not just, now, now I'm joining a club. Now now I get to join this church. Now I get to say that I've done something. Now I get to say I've had an experience. That is a turning point in your life. Repentance, confession of sin, baptism is a turning point, and your life should look completely different from there on out. And, that, and it was that way from the very beginning. And I love that Luke's account highlights specific instances, tax collectors, people, soldiers, your life will look different after this. If your life does not look different, you didn't do it the right way. But you should be changing your life based on this. This, You know, anytime you've got a big group movement, it's easy to kind of get caught up in it. Oh, a lot of people are doing this thing right now. Let me just kind of go along with the crowd. Oh, I had a great time. I feel really good about it. And then it fades. That's not what John's talking about. John is talking about changing your life. and That's exactly what Jesus is going to talk about as well. When he comes and he begins his ministry, changing your life, thinking different, acting different so that everybody can see it. And I love, that, I love that Luke brings that out. We, we've already talked about this, but Luke was not afraid to speak the truth. It didn't matter who it was. Soldiers, can you imagine that? Just think about that for a second. You're preaching, a bunch of soldiers come up. And they say, well, you know, we don't need to do anything right. No, change. Luke was not afraid to talk to soldiers. He was not afraid to talk to tax collectors. He was not afraid to talk to people. He wasn't afraid to talk to Herod. And he's going to lose his life because of it. Because he was not afraid to speak the truth to anybody. Again, when we go to John, Pharisees, Sadducees come to him. I'm gonna tell you exactly. I'm not gonna tell you what you need to hear. I'm gonna tell you exactly what the truth is. He rebuked Herod. He was gonna be in prison for it, and later on, we find out he's gonna lose his life because of it. All right, let's go back to Matthew chapter three now. Yes, sir, John. Yeah. You mentioned
1: earlier some passage that showed how well John was doing his job. In Luke uh, 3.15, it says, Now the people were in a state of expectation, wondering if he might be the Christ. So there's mm-hmm. a good clue that he was getting the job done.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was exactly what he They were in a state of expectation. He was teeing it up. Again, these things were not done in a corner. Everybody in this region would know that something is going on. Okay, let's go back to let's go back to Matthew chapter three. Uh, this, we're going to talk here about the baptism of Jesus. Uh, Mark mentions it. It's pretty brief in, in Mark's account. Uh, Luke chapter 3 also mentions it fairly, fairly briefly. Uh, Matthew here is the one that provides kind of the most detail about it. This is after John's ministries began. Uh, again, Jesus is not particularly close to this. In Jerusalem and Judea, he is he's up in Nazareth. So he is leaving Galilee. He's going to come down to the Jordan to be baptized. As you recall in verse 14, John tries to prevent him. He said, no, listen, I I need to be baptized by you. Uh, He recognized perhaps this individual that, that has no sin in his life. Again, we're talking about transformative change. That's John's message. Repentance, confession of sin, changing your life. Jesus does not fit those categories. But Jesus tells him to permit it. In verse 15, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And and what happens next is is truly remarkable. Um, After his baptism, the heavens open, the Spirit of God in the form of a dove comes down and alights upon Jesus. Um, In verse 17, Suddenly a voice came from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Um, And and what we're going to see is that this shows John, that Jesus was truly the Messiah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that we're going to have the time to get to it today, so let's just go ahead and go over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and in verse 33, John is recounting this. This is later on, after the fact. He's recounting this to individuals that came to him from the Sanhedrin. And he says, verse 33, "...I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So this was something, and there is, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not super clear. Did everybody see this, or did just John see this? When you look at uh, one of the other accounts, it mentions that he saw the heavens open. Um, so it's not, uh, I don't think it matters one way or another. What I think the big takeaway is, is that John needed to see this. John apparently had been told beforehand Whenever you see this, this is the one. John knew that he was coming. John may have, in fact, even have known Jesus. But he may not have been fully assured that this was the Messiah. But he was told. The person that sent him to do his work said, When you see the heavens opened and the Spirit descending on this person, that's the guy. And John saw it, and he didn't stop talking about it. So he needed to, he needed to see this. Uh, Let's go on real quick. We just have a couple minutes left, and and we're further behind than we've been before. Let's go talk for just a minute about the temptation. Um, And, and again, this is recorded in Matthew chapter 4. It's recorded in Mark. Mark. Man, Mark's crazy. (laughs) Something like this, two verses. Jesus was tempted. He left. Mark, Mark and Mark fly through some events. Uh, go with me real quick to Luke chapter 4. With, with the time we have left, let's spend it in Luke chapter 4. And let's just bring out a couple of things about the temptation of Jesus. It mentions in Luke uh, chapter 4 verse 1 that Jesus was now filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, when you start reading commentaries, people make a, they make a big deal about this. I'm not saying it's not a big deal. But it just tells us he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So some people would say this was the moment that he got his ability. You know, his ability to work miracles. This was the point in time. I'm not sure. But it tells us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit after this point in time where he was baptized. And God specifically identified him as his son. So now, congratulations, you're the son of God. John knows it. John's going to tell everybody, now go to the desert. You know, again, think about man's track. Remember when I said if you were going to build a president, what would you do? Probably not this. You cannot send him out to be tested, tried, isolated, and to go through this period of time. What's interesting, and I think Matthew's account is the one that actually mentions this. I think. Let me say, Matthew four. No, maybe it's uh, no Luke. It's Luke's account. Luke four, verse two. You ever think about this? Luke four, verse two says he was tempted for forty days. At least in my mind, not that not that fasting for forty days is any picnic. He fasted for 40 days, and then he was tempted. Luke's account says he was tempted the entire time. In fact, when you go to the end, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but when you go to verse 13, it says that the devil had ended every temptation. He departed from him forever. No, he departed from him until an opportune time. When Hebrews says that Christ was tempted in all points as we are, I don't want us to think that he just had this one big test to overcome. And he crammed for it for 40 days, he passed the test, and then he was never tempted again. I think what Luke's account tells us, that there is a constant temptation. Satan, and just what we know about Satan, this roaring lion, this persistent tempter, he didn't just go tempt him one time and then walk away and say, oh man, that guy's good. No, he, he tempted him all throughout this. He brought all forces to bear, and then he went away until there was a better time and he was going to come back again. And what I want us to take away with just the few seconds we have left, and we'll, we'll have to come back on this next week, is that this is, this is really a model for how Satan works on us. You know, you, you think about the different temptations that are, that are presented here. You know, he uses things, and just kind of chew on this over the next week. He uses things that don't appear wrong. You know, just work a miracle. You're really hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. Turn these stones into bread. Simple. Innocuous. He uses things that don't appear wrong, but they're distracting us and pulling us away from the spiritual. They're changing who we are at the core of us. He adapts when we resist his initial efforts. So we we turn back from one. You think he's just going to walk away? No, he adapts. He changes. He even uses scripture. He can twist scripture. And I'll just bring this out, and then I'll let you guys have some comments, and we'll talk about this a little bit next week. But just go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, and think about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, how in each of these different ways he's working on a separate facet. He's working on what appeals to our carnal, fleshly, uh, fleshly mind. And then he works on what might appear to, might appear to our pride. So you just all these different ways that he works and that he tempts us, and I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. But we will pick up with Luke chapter four uh, next week, and then we'll finish out we'll finish out John um, before we get into before we get into the following week. I appreciate it.